Hi, I'm Billy Shore. Welcome to Add Passion and Stir. It's the podcast from Share Our Strength. We share the inspirational stories of individuals who set their sights on a problem and use their strengths to create solutions. We'll be right back after this. Welcome back to Add Passion and Stir. It's our regular conversation about food, hunger, passion, and making a difference in the world. I'm joined today by my colleague, Pamela Taylor, our Chief Communications and Marketing Officer at Share Our Strength, uh, who has helped advance not only Share Our Strength, but our No Kid Hungry campaign. Uh, and we are so fortunate today to have Stephen Satterfield with us, uh, who many of you know is the founder of Whetstone Magazine. It's also been uh, the featured uh, force on High on the Hog, uh, how African-American Cuisine has transformed America, which um, is on Netflix and I think heading for a second season. Is that right, Stephen? That is correct. Yes. Thank you. Thanks so much for joining us. We're, we're, there are so many great things to talk about. And uh, I feel like, you know, your work and your body of work, even though you're a mere 36 years old, you've accomplished so much. And I feel it goes right to the heart of what Share Our Strength is all about and the notion that. Uh, not only do we all have a, a strength to share, but that food intersects with just about everything we care about, our environment, our health, our education, uh, our economy. And you've been a kind of a food anthropologist who's helped uh, people understand how the origins of food just relate to our our actual humanity. Um, so I would love to just start like at the beginning in terms of where your fascination with the history of food began. Sure. Thanks. And um, I'm actually 37. So if, if oh, you're anyone, an old man, if, yeah, okay. I'm, I'm a bit more mature than you previously. I thought you were a young pup. Yeah. So um, anyhow, yeah, my fascination with food didn't really begin as a fascination so much as um, just being inundated with it. My father was and is the primary cook of our house. And our household was always the household for convening for holidays and occasions. So uh, I really had a relationship with food early in life that was about uh, a means of celebration and connection and, um, you know, gender neutral, shall we say. Um, and as, And this was happening uh, at a time in the late 90s. Um, as the Food Network was really becoming increasingly more of a cultural force in the US, we started to see a professionalization of uh, culinary arts, which was uh, exacerbated by the rise of culinary schools. Um, so that actually was a path that I ended up pursuing. I did a very brief stopping and um, at the University of Oregon in Eugene, which was sweet, but not for me, um, and ended up going to Portland, Oregon and uh, enrolling in culinary school there in 2004 as a 19-year-old. So um, I knew pretty early on that I wanted to find a way and make my way in food. I wasn't exactly sure how to do that. Um, I enrolled in the hospitality program, got really deeply interested in wine studies, which was a prerequisite for the class. And that curiosity with wine became a real uh, fascination and love. Um, and I think for me, that is really the kind of moment of enlightenment around uh, 
you know, my whole philosophy with, with food, which we can talk more about, but that's, you know, more or less my, uh, origin story. Yeah. And, 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 and that fascination started more with wine than with food per se, it sounds like. And, and I was going to ask you whether, uh, there was a wine connection to your father as well, or was he just more food focused? Cause I'm sure you know this, but you know, if we've talked to 200 culinary guests on Ad Passion and Stir, 199 of them. Uh, influence was their mom or their grandmother. Uh, but for you, it's your father. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. Very different. Totally. And um, I think that my father cooking um, was a was a really important thing for me to see. Uh, it seems silly, even in this big year of 2022, that there's still are some um, ideas in our culture around who the kitchen is so-called for and who it's not for um, from a gender perspective. So it was really good for me to see my father um, in the kitchen, you know, and not just on the grill, let's say. Um, but yeah, he, he, so yeah, the wine thing really happened, um, as I say, is, is for a part of this uh, program that I was enrolled in. And um, my teacher, a guy named John Eliason, um, was the first one to encourage me to visit the Willamette Valley uh, and that was the first time I really started to understand wine as an agricultural product and not as an aspirational product. Yeah, Stephen, what do you mean by that? Uh, that's I, I, That sounds like an important distinction to understand, and I want to make sure everybody understands it between agricultural product and aspirational. Sure, yeah. So um, part of the marketing behind wine for gosh, over a hundred years has been in the realm of prestige, uh, luxury, class, and aspiration. And, you know, I, as a middle-class black boy from Atlanta, um, it was not a thing that spoke to my family, um, you know, who were uh, very working class people and, you know, honestly, from a cultural perspective, um, as a black person, you know, we don't often see our likeness reflected in the marketing campaigns and materials um, for wine. Uh, has shifted a bit in recent years with champagne and as uh, culture shifts with commerce constantly. But um, at the time, especially, you know, in the early 2000s um, and taking this class, it really struck me that um, A, I was learning a language, which proved to be really important for me later in traveling the world. Um, And that this thing that I had understood to not be for me per se um, was actually just grapes, (laughs) you know, like I went to a vineyard and I was like, oh, it's just, it's just grapes. Um, and, and so for that made it, um, in my mind for the first time, something accessible and, um, I just grew to love it and became a sommelier at a very young age. Uh, and that fascination with, with land and agriculture, uh, and shortly thereafter with all of the injustice tied to, um, you know, stories about land and agriculture, um, has really shaped my career, my philosophy and relationship to food over the last, I don't know, almost 20 years. So Stephen, thank you for joining us today. I 
I, I, I love what you've been saying, but I want to drill in on the irony of how homogenous this space of food and wine and entertaining has been in what you witnessed, you know, in culinary school and in your early years of your career. But so much of that food and the land and the agriculture comes from what we as Black people worked and did and created and cultivated and nourished. Um, as Billy just mentioned, it's it's troubling that so many of our Black and Brown children and families are food insecure. And I think the irony of that is an interesting intersection of the stories that you've been telling about the influence and the the cultivation that Black people have had in land and food and culture. And can you talk a little bit about what led you to these stories that you're now intentionally telling the history of the land and the food and where it comes from and and the involvement of our people? Definitely. Thank you for that question, Pamela. Um, Gosh, there's so much there. Um, So yeah, basically, let's talk about, we'll go chronologically. You know, um, I think that, uh, you know, the relationship that, that we have to food, um, as a culture in the U S, um, and increasingly as a global culture, um, is no relationship at all. (laughs) And I think that's sort of the point, uh, of, of a cultural erasure and, um, an immensely profitable sector in consolidating and monocropping and monetizing the way we eat. Um, and so I'll break it down more. Basically, um, y- you know, we look at food origins as a means of cultural reclamation because what has happened in our society is the it's a it's a in in a racialized society a society that that functions on a racial hierarchy the dominant racial class uh is going to write the history of that nation and the way in which that history is written is obviously going to have central parts that are excluded omitted uh, obfuscated to support an overarching narrative and for for folks of color what that has mean has meant is that our relationship to the history of this country has been one that has erased our contributions and diminished them so much so that we have ourselves internalized what is so-called white food or black food is for us, is it for us? Meanwhile, food is really the core reason our knowledge of the land is 
A, why we were first brought here in captivity. It is, unlike most people think, not just our physical bodies, but actually our agricultural acumen. And in addition to that, we came here in a circumstance where we were just given enough food to do the amount of labor required. So as you are fighting for your life and health, literally, through disease, uh, after a horrific months-long voyage where you've just uh, been given rations enough to survive, now you have to fend for yourself. And so what African people do is we forage, we cultivate gardens, and this subsistence farming on the outer realms of the plantation is how we survive and how we persist. And so this becomes a source of agency for Black people and others, uh, communities of color, by the way. But the, the conflict is that our relation to the land continues to be, even in 2022, one of racial subjugation. And all we have to do is look at the numbers of homeownerships. We can look at the ways that uh, mortgages or houses rather are uh, appraised for half a million dollars less when there's a black family inhabiting it. We can look at the, the racial wealth gap, right? So that dynamic continues and, and the tragedy slash opportunity um, and part of what I hope my work can be a, a small part of is bringing back this ancestral knowledge, this deep knowledge that is in our bones that has also given us life, right? And opportunity, even in 2022, has the capacity to uh, radically undermine the systems that continue to harm us and keep us down. Um, and so, you know, that's when I talk about food as a means of radicalizing people, galvanizing people, um, it really does get straight to the land um, and, and building solidarity around food in small communities, I think, is a hugely underestimated way um, for, for communities and especially communities of color uh, to take back power. Oh, that's wonderful. I love hearing that. I, I want to ask you about some of the work that we do in relation to what you've just described. So our focus is around hunger and poverty, ending hunger and poverty. And one of the things that we you know, are acutely aware of is people are hungry because they're impoverished. I think about the fact that so many young black and brown children don't really understand not only the history of our, our influence and our involvement in the world of agriculture and food and cooking, but the potential it has for them to find a pathway, a career, a way out of their generational poverty. It has not been presented in recent decades 
um, as a viable or sustainable uh, career choice for kids. So I'd like to hear a little bit around your thoughts of, you know, what do you intend to do with this media group, perhaps, to inspire younger generations to learn more about what you've learned and what they can possibly do with it? Totally. Yeah. I mean, I think that's why we really focus on uh narrative reclamation. Um, One of the humbling and incredibly illuminating things of of this opportunity of hosting High on the Hog has been the inbound letters from not just the Black diaspora, but really folks around the world, Um, members of various diasporas, um who though their stories are different than broadly speaking let's say the african american story right they understood the story of migration they understood the heartache of of the severance from the homeland um the struggle to rebuild these are human stories, actually. And, you know, we really have, um, I think, an ability in in sharing new narratives that have simply um, really just need to be not written, but revealed, um, is really empowering for the communities who can see themselves in that history. Because not seeing yourself as a part of a cultural narrative is deeply, deeply damaging, I think, in ways that we tend to not understand, Um, especially like as Black people, you know, we often uh, are inclined to just put our heads down uh, and say, you know, we live in a racist society. This is just what it is. And so not only do we internalize this erasure, right, but we we don't challenge it. And so you need to see uh, an example of what's possible in order to be able to create the future that you want, you know, that we want, which is a, a future of joy and liberation and community where labor is not extractive and at the center of our lives and identities. Um, But in order to build that world, we're going to need access to a lot of information that we have not been armed with. And the reasons that we have not been armed with that information, I believe are intentional and sinister. And conversely, I think in the the revelation of these stories and this information is equally uh, empowering and, and galvanizing. And so we are in the story business and we're in the 
revelation and reclamation business. So, so Stephen, talk a little bit about being in the story business and uh, you talk about access to this information, which is otherwise not available. Um, some of it's from High on the Hog on Netflix. Some of it's from your podcast. You're the founder of Whetstone Magazine. Share a little bit about kind of your ambition for the kind of communications platform that uh, is in the process of being built. We started this magazine in 2017 um, really because I had the same frustrating experience that I had early in my wine career, um, which was this feeling of homogeneity. Um, and so, you know, the restaurants that were being written about, or I should really say the way that food was being written about was just limited to restaurants um, and really the same type of restaurant, which of course has all sorts of implications about who got to participate in that ownership, who got to go to those schools and on and on. And at the beginning, I was kind of annoyed by this. It felt like a missed opportunity for me as a consumer and someone who loves food. But increasingly, I started to see it as as dangerous um, actually, because this, because of this cultural erasure. And so when we started Whetstone as a print magazine, um, working internationally, uh, because of the constraints of, of the medium, we can only work on 92 pages. Um, it became clear almost instantly that we needed to expand. We, um, are, a company that works globally um, in print. I believe we've worked in about 60 or 70 countries and across all of our publishing um, have worked in about a hundred countries. And, you know, even though uh, a meaningful part of my work is about kind of the Afro American and black diasporic culinary story, um, uh, equal amount for me is about kind of facilitating that, let's say, high on the hog moment for a variety of cultures around the world um, because of all the reasons I just described, you know, and all of the, the potency and potential, I think, that comes in that that revelation. Um, and so we're busy with that. Um, uh, we just launched a podcast network last month in December of 2021. So we have three different shows out from all over the world, a show in Taiwan um, called Climate Cuisine, uh, which we talked a little bit about earlier. We have a show from a chef and poet here in Atlanta, Georgia, called Fruit Love Letters. It's sort of a food anthropology show. And we have a show being produced in Delhi, India, really across India, uh, called Bad Table Manners which is uh, kind of about, um, as I mentioned, reclaiming and uh, interrogating some of the colonial food food systems and structures in Indian cuisine. Uh, when for you did you, and maybe this was always part of your thinking, but when did your um, interest and, and passion for wine and food uh, kind of convert over to storytelling and the discovery of the, the stories that uh, shape who we are. Sure. Yeah. Um, I would say probably in 2007. Um, so basically I had become a sommelier as a very young person and 
in that world, you know, I found that I was always um, really confounded by how homogenous my my colleagues uh, or the composition of, of my colleagues were. Um, I mean, basically, it just, um, as I mentioned earlier, started to strike me as uh, the nonverbal communication signaling that this was not a space for me. Um, and, you know, this was well before social media. So we didn't have the means of making connections with other peers as we do now. Um, and so I think the industry is in a much, much healthier place now. Um, although imperfect, um, you know, in the early 2000s, uh, it was quite homogenous. And so I decided that um, it wasn't for me, but I didn't want to give up my love of wine. So I decided to start a nonprofit organization called International Society of Africans in Wine, or ISAW, it's the acronym. And basically, we had a, a loose mission of using wine as a catalyst for socioeconomic impact in the Western Cape of South Africa, but specifically for um, Black growers, Black winemakers, and other kind of participants in the wine industry there. Um, and, you know, the telling the story of South African wine uh, was really interesting and revelatory and in that in order to tell this story, we were having to talk about things like apartheid um, and talk about the fact that these families who have lived on this land for hundreds of years that they still don't own, but continue to be uh, a prevailing part of the workforce in South Africa. And what I found in, in capturing media about these communities um, and hosting tastings and, and uh, you know, kind of screenings on behalf of the organization is that talking about wine allowed me to talk about things that were otherwise impossible to access in sort of daily conversation or polite conversation. And so I began to see um, a couple of key relationships. A, uh, the kind of dominance of the land um, as a theme all over the world um, and how that informs our global food cultures. Um, and also, you know, seeing how food had a unique ability as this thing that we share and engage in all over the world, you know, as eaters and humans, um, to be able to give us a common language, very much like that language of wine that I learned, uh, which allowed me to go to places like Eastern Europe or South Africa uh, or Spain and be able to kind of make my way around that place because I knew the language of wine. And so now I'm sort of advocating for the language of food as a means of accessing difficult conversations and just sort of generally um, kind of waking people up about all of the, the deep connections um, that we have with, as you mentioned earlier, environment, culture, uh, society, um, that are right in, in plain sight and in, in talking about food and thinking about food. How can folks like us make a difference? How can the average person make a difference in, you know, kind of writing some of these wrongs through choices that they make? Um, and I'm assuming that there is a way for individuals to 
have an impact on the kind of issues that we're talking about? Yeah, I think it just simply comes from a desire to want to help. Um, and specifically, just speaking to the parts about food, um, a lot of our activism in the food world, um, like our restaurant communities, um, really tends to speak to uh, the same and overlapping audiences. And it's the same audiences who can afford to go to those restaurants that I got so sick of reading about that I started a media company. And so how we break that, I think, demands all of our attention and effort, right? So first of all, are there farmers of color in your community that you can directly support? So increasingly all over the states, especially in urban areas, obviously farmers markets have been a thing for many decades, but there is a burgeoning movement of black farmers, indigenous farmers, um, POC farmers who are working on various uh, urban ag projects, land-based projects, collaborative projects that really brings back a lot of that agency that I was speaking to earlier and cultural connection. So we need to support these projects um, with all of our heart. So if you are the type to go to a farmer's market and you're noticing homogeneity, this is the theme, right, at the market, then we need to advocate for more diversity because the problem with using the word diversity like it feels like homework, like, okay, I guess we have to do diversity now. But the the subtext is that in a homogenous environment, that exclusion is actually a really violent experience for the people who are not in that space. And I know that the word violence feels really intense, but looking at the work that y'all do and seeing the physical harm that is embodied from people for all kinds of reasons who are excluded from our direct care and contact like that's a violent thing displacement gentrification this is violence well just think just think of hunger on a child's body exactly i mean what's what's more that's literally physically violent exactly so i think that in general you know direct support for uh for farmers of color i think directly finding ways where you can just give away food for free um is actually a simple thing that's powerful um, and I think, you know, looking in your own backyard, I think so much about how activism is presented to us, um, you know, is about our position uh, as a as a dominant imperial force uh, is the the do gooders of the world, the moral authority of the world. And, um, you know, the world is not asking for us to be that. And we haven't proven ourselves to be um, the most responsible holders of that power. And so 
I think, you know, the inclination to look abroad to want to help um, needs to be supplanted with what is happening in my own backyard, in my own community. And if you do not, if you're not able to find impacted communities, marginalized communities where you are, um, I think that is actually uh, a really important portal to begin inquiry around the the various kinds of erasure that we're talking about. And hopefully that can um, renew your commitment to bringing more diversity into your life in a way that doesn't feel like homework, but feels like radical solidarity. The power of, you know, kind of the power of what you've described as revelatory, uh, I've got to assume has been very inspiring to many other people around the country and around the globe. And you've talked about some of the incoming messages you, you've had. Do, do you almost kind of see like the creation of a, a field or a body of work around this? Are there other people that are going to be either following in your footsteps or spinning off to do different pieces of this? I hope so. I mean, you know, I think the, the cool thing about the moment we're in now when I, when we started, you know, um, it felt like there was us and then a lot of legacy or institutional, um, players. And now, uh, as technology moves, you know, we, everyone is now a media company. Um, we use the same channels of, of telling our story, um, as you know, anyone who is, is a user of social media. And, um, while that can be a very, noisy and harrowing experience um, for all kinds of reasons. I think as far as amplifying the kind of stories that we're talking about, I see that as a, you know, exciting and inevitable future uh, as the fragmentation of how we use the internet will inevitably continue. Um, and really, I think a lot of communities of color, what maybe felt like um, a brief moment of activism in 2020, um, a lot of folks made the choice, like, actually, we're not going back uh, to business as usual. And there was and continues to be a lot of movement building born in that moment, uh, from that moment that I think will continue to impact society uh, for years to come. And um, fortunately, we're just at the very beginning of that phase. Uh, Stephen, I know we've got to let you go. When can we uh, find you on the next season of High on the Hog? That is a great question. I would also okay. love to know. <laughs> <laughs> um, but it is happening. Uh, we'll be filming this year in 2022 and um, ecstatic to be able to get to, to work on that project again. And then tell us some of the other best uh, platforms to find you on. I know on Instagram, I think you've got the best Instagram uh, name or handle that I've seen. I saw Steven, love that. Uh, yes. I, I saw Steven on Instagram. And then uh, I'm assuming Whetstone Magazine's, uh, whetstonemagazine.com is a good place. Exactly right. Um, yeah, I'm, I saw Steven everywhere. Um, and actually, that's the acronym for the International Society of Africans in Wine, too. So 
also relevant. Um, but yeah, and then whetstonemagazine.com, whetstoneradio.com. And wherever you listen to podcasts, type in Whetstone and you will find an ever-growing universe of food stories from around the world. Fantastic. Well, I know my uh, colleague and partner, Pamela, wants to uh, thank you as well before we uh, run off. So, Pamela, let me turn it over to you. 100%. Absolute. So, the I realized your Instagram name was the is the acronym of your nonprofit when you yep. started working with the uh, winemakers in Africa. So that makes total sense. Um, but I do love to follow you there. I want to thank you so much for your time, um, for all of the knowledge that you're pouring in to us today and through all of your mediums of communicating uh, the story, the history, the work, the future, the possibilities, all of it has been wonderful. We look forward to uh, the next season when that is, and um, we certainly look forward to seeing what you do next and certainly hope that uh, we can do more things together. So again, thank you so much for your time today. Appreciate the opportunity to chat. On behalf of the entire team at Share Our Strength and the No Kid Hungry campaign. Um, I just want to thank you for joining us and urge our listeners, if they've enjoyed this episode, to go to addpassionandstir.com and find our uh, other podcasts. And you can rate us and rank us and subscribe and share with your friends. Um, and I'm really grateful uh, that we've had this time with Stephen Satterfeld. Stephen, uh, I know we're going to be following your career for a long time long time and i hope we'll find ways to continue to intersect with each other i hope so too thank you for the nice words um, and thoughtful questions and appreciate the opportunity to chat thanks so much you've been listening to add passion and stir i'm billy shore 